Good morning. The reading today is uh, 1 Samuel 17. It's page 288 and 289 in the Church Bibles. <coughs> David and Goliath. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soccer in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soccer and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shariam road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. 
he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Hi, everyone. This has got to be one of my favorite stories in the Bible. The Bible is full of stories, of course. And um, I always used to feel bad when people would say, you'd be chatting in a group and they'd be like, what's your Bible verse? And they'd say Romans something or Ephesians something. And I'd be like, the story of David and Goliath? (laughs) Is that all right? But God has given us these stories for a reason, hasn't he? And they're as much part of scripture as uh, Ephesians and Romans. So plenty to learn. In fact, there's so much to learn from this story that uh, I've had to cut out a lot of what I was going to say this morning and turn it into five home group studies instead. But um, today we're going to look at the really big picture. And I hope that in doing that, um, some of the details that might have applied to people in here and you could sort of benefit from won't be lost. I hope you'll go away and read the story again and glean some of these other details. But uh, we're going to go big picture. So let me pray for God's help as we do that. Lord God, thank you for the stories of the Bible. Thank you for how they feed our imagination. Thank you for how they shape the way we live and our view of you. And so, Lord God, help us as we look at this uh, amazing story of David and Goliath to see more about you and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, well, I'm going to go big picture because I think this story of David and Goliath is often misunderstood. And it's often misunderstood because people might take a small detail of the story, and it might be a, a good detail, something that we can learn from the story, and they make that into the point of, of the story. The whole point of David and Goliath is such and such, this small detail, maybe how to win your battles, how to overcome giant obstacles in your life. And those might be good things to pull out of the story, but I want us to ask, like, what is the real meaning of this? Where, where is the big picture here? What does God want us to learn from the story of David and Goliath? And I want us to use the principle, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let's not try and read this story and then think, you know what, I like that bit, so I'm going to make that the point of the story. Let's allow God to tell us what the point of this story is. And when we do that, we see it's about a savior. David is the savior in the story, and he points us to an ultimate savior, who is Jesus Christ, of course. Look at these verses from the New Testament. Jesus said... Uh, Sorry, this is um, Jesus walking with his uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. John 5, Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And in Acts 8, Philip came across a man reading Isaiah 53, an Old Testament prophet, and we read, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. 
So what does God tell us the Old Testament is about, and in fact the whole of Scripture? God tells us it's about Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at in the story of David and Goliath this morning. So firstly, there's a need for a savior. The Israelites faced an undefeatable enemy, and symbolically, all of humanity faces an undefeatable enemy. Israel's enemy was Goliath. This is verse 4 again. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. That's about three meters or nine feet. I was going to get a chair and stand on it here, but I haven't. Bit taller than that, I think, probably. Um, so we're not talking fairy tale giant, but a pretty big guy. It's about 30 centimeters taller than the tallest man on modern record, Robert Warlow, or Wardlow, I think it is. I've got a typo here, who was two meters, 72 centimeters tall. Here he is. The tallest man currently living is Sultan Kozen, who stands at two and a half meters tall. That's eight feet and two inches. So actually, there really are people alive today who, if you're standing down there, are this tall. That's amazing, isn't it? I haven't met him, but I'd like to. So this guy, Goliath, is an unusually big man, and he was also unusually strong. Talks about his armor weighing 58 kilograms or nine stone. That's like the equivalent of a person on you, isn't it? And he carried a spear with an iron head weighing 6.9 kilograms. Now, if you've been to the gym and done weights, you know that 6.9 kilograms isn't actually that much, but it's about the same weight as a sledgehammer head. So imagine this giant guy waving a sledgehammer around in front of him and you trying to get close to uh, engage him in combat. It'd be quite tricky. And so you can understand why there was absolutely nothing the Israelites could do about it. Verse 24, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. That is Israel's undefeatable enemy. So what's our Goliath? I think it's pretty obvious that the one thing all humanity is powerless in the face of is death. The poet Dylan Thomas wrote this about death. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That is a haunting picture of death closing in on a person and swallowing them up as uh, they rage against it. You can fight, but you can't win. We don't like talking about death, do we? A lot of people don't fear death in our culture. We've come up with ways to explain it away. It's just the circle of life. It's natural. Religion's just a way to make us feel better about it. It will all be all right in the end. Maybe we'll be reincarnated. You know, maybe our souls will live on in peace. Maybe we'll just switch off and cease to exist. These are some of the things we tell ourselves. And I can't disprove any of those views, but I can say that the Bible offers a different explanation, which is that death is unnatural. We were created to live. We were created to create meaning and beauty in our lives. And it's unnatural that all of our relationships and all of our work and achievements are snatched away from us right at the end. That is why we grieve and mourn. 
And that is why we put off the moment as long as possible, which funnily enough, the Israelite army were doing as well. In verse 16, we learn for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Imagine standing out there in the field for over a month, just putting off the inevitable, just thinking one day I'm going to be killed by that huge guy, but you know, at least I'm going to put it off for a bit. So the Israelites needed a savior to come along, and so do we. And thankfully, God sends one along. Here's the arrival of the Savior, secondly. And the point I want to make here is that God's pattern is that the Savior should come from a really humble background. And that's because God saves everyone, not just the powerful, not just the rich and the famous. God saves everyone. So here's David in verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah, that's a measure of weight, 16 kilograms or so. Take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. I love this. David is going to be the hero of the story and we're introduced to him transporting cheese. (laughs) So in many ways, he is a completely unexpected savior. He was a shepherd. He had an ordinary job back then. He was part of a large family, and he was the youngest in the large family. He was the baby of the family. And he had no fighting experience. It makes quite a point of the fact that he wasn't in the army and his three older brothers were. That's God's pattern. I'd like us to think of some other famous saviors in the Bible who point us forward to Jesus. Think of Joseph, who started his journey to becoming prime minister of Egypt by being thrown down a well and then being sold into slavery. Think of Moses. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd in the desert, deserts of northwestern Arabia, and then he marches into Pharaoh and demands that Pharaoh release an entire nation of slaves. Can you imagine how ridiculous that would seem to Pharaoh? This shepherd walks in and demands such great things. Esther, another savior in the Bible um, pointing to Jesus. Esther was an orphan. She was living in exile from her homeland. And then she became queen of an empire stretching from India to Egypt and saved her entire people group. And so when Jesus is born, we don't expect a palace and we don't expect a prince, do we? You all know the story. Let me read some of the Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. As I read this just before, it struck me. In all these savior stories of the Bible, there is always a powerful figure who it turns out not to be the savior. We've got David and Goliath, and and there's King Saul. King Saul is not the savior. In um, the Joseph story, you've got Pharaoh, you know, in charge of Egypt, and he's not the savior. Moses, um, you know, there are other powerful figures in there. Esther, uh, the king, the uh, emperor there, was not the savior. So, sorry, where was I? In those days, Caesar Augustus, not the savior issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. You know it so well, don't you? And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger 
because there was no guest room available to them. So Jesus, from humble beginnings, born in Bethlehem, the same town actually as David, the hero of our story, to an ordinary young lady called Mary, who's placed in a manger where the animals fed, brought up in the house of carpenter Joseph in the ordinary town of uh, Bulldog, <laughs> just to give you a sense of what Nazareth was like. Uh, he was brought up in Nazareth, a bit like Bulldog. And for the first 30 years of his life, he was fairly anonymous. And then, of course, he appeared on the scene at 30 years old and turned the world upside down. God sent a very ordinary savior because he loves people like you and people like me. And he cares about our little gathering here this morning. I've been in, for, for years, part of churches where uh, if we got 30 people on a Sunday, that would be a good number. And obviously a few more than that in here. But even there, just 30 of us, sometimes even fewer, sometimes 15 of us, we knew that God cared about our little gathering because he sent his son to be born and laid in a manger where the animals fed. And he cares about all of us individually. Isn't that heartwarming? But unfortunately, the rejection of a savior is our next thing. The Old Testament shows us that God's savior wouldn't have an easy time. Listen to how David was rejected and the opposition David faced and where it came from. Verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So David's brother was waiting with everybody else for someone to come along and fight Goliath. He was waiting for a savior. And when the savior arrived, he was angry, probably because he was jealous of David. He had no respect. He said, with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? In other words, David, you're nothing. You're unimportant. Who do you think you are? And he resorted to character assassination. He says to David, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Well, David's going to end up fighting the battle. He didn't come down to watch. And Jesus faced exactly the same things from those closest to him. Particularly, the Jewish religious leaders who were waiting for God to raise up a savior, the Messiah. And when the savior arrived, they were angry, probably because they were jealous. Here's Matthew 21. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did and the children shouting praise in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were angry. They belittled Jesus and had no respect for him. Listen to this. And this is uh, horrible, really, when you think about it. Matthew 26, 67. The Jewish relig religious leaders spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Can you imagine, like that kind of evil coming from these religious le leaders. They call him Messiah ironically as an insult, but the irony comes back on them, doesn't it? Because he was the Messiah. And they resorted to character assassination in a first century sort of way. The Pharisees said, Matthew 9, 
It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. In other words, he's evil and his motives are evil. Don't listen to him. Very similar to David's experience. And the lesson for us is that we shouldn't be surprised when people don't like Jesus. I saw a TV presenter once who went up to the front door of a house and uh, on the letterbox was one of those no junk mail signs. But it said something like, it was a joke, it said like, we don't want your flyers, we've already given to charity, we've already found Jesus. But when she said Jesus, you could just tell there was a hint of embarrassment in her voice. We've already found, poor slightly, Jesus. And in our country, that's often the first response of anyone you talk to about Jesus. They're embarrassed, aren't they? And then you try to take it a bit further. Embarrassment turns into anger. Why is that? Well, let's learn from David's brother, shall we? He attacked David because, firstly, David showed up his failings. Why wasn't he out fighting Goliath? His younger brother was willing to do it. And secondly, David's brother knew in his heart that David was right. Now, I know there are many different ways to look at this, and people will probably disagree with me. But I think Jesus is met with such scorn and anger because he says we're sinners who fail to worship the God who created us. And in our hearts, we know he's right. But I know there are a lot of different ways to cut that cake. The rejection of a savior. Let's move on and think about the methods of a savior. Because David won the battle in a pretty unconventional way, didn't he? So we can expect Jesus' methods to be slightly unconventional as well. King Saul wanted David to do things the proper way. Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. And instead, you know how it goes. Verse 40, he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Now, a sling is a, is a weapon. It's a projectile weapon. So maybe it doesn't seem so silly to us, particularly because we know the outcome of the battle. But what if there's David, and he's like this, and then he, you know, flings the sling, and he misses. And now, David is running at him with, a, you know, all his armor and a sword and a spear. David has no close combat weapon to kill him, and he has no armor, so if he runs away, he's going to get that sledgehammer spear in his back, and he's got nothing to protect him. So I think to Saul and the rest of the army, going out there with only a sling would have seemed pretty silly. But it worked. And in a poetic, if slightly gruesome moment, David chopped off Goliath's head with his own sword. How many victims' blood had that sword seen? Remember, Goliath was described by Saul as a man of war from his youth. That sword had probably seen a lot of blood. And now the same sword beheads the person who wielded it. Let me just read the, uh, the victory part, verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So, David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, 
he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's uh, sword, (laughs) a bit of a mouthful, drew it from his sheath, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Now, I know that's pretty violent. How is it a picture of Jesus? Well, Jesus came to save us from death, and surprisingly, he turns the enemy's own sword back on itself, and Jesus died on the cross to save us from death. So who, who dies to save somebody from death? That's unexpected. And of course, Jesus' followers didn't understand it either until afterwards. But it is quite simple in a way, and I'm just going to do... I don't really like these kind of um, summary statements of the gospel because it's too simplistic, and the gospel is very rich and full of life and meaning. But uh, I'm going to give you a, a brief summary of the gospel. Death is a punishment for sin. Humanity dies because humanity is sinful collectively. But Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment we deserve. So now our sins can be forgiven, and death doesn't need to be the end. Let me quote a few scriptures at you to show you that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And I've got one of those scriptures here, most famously perhaps, Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So Jesus defeated death for us in an unexpected way. And just as David's methods would have seemed silly to the army at the time, to to wise King Saul, so Jesus' methods seem silly to the wise today. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. So Jesus' methods were unexpected and seem foolish to a lot of people just as David's did. But finally, let's look at the victory of a savior. And I want you to notice two things about the story of David and Goliath and how it ends, the victory. First of all, David's victory was conclusive. And secondly, David's victory was the people's victory. So firstly, it was conclusive. Verse 51 says, when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned around. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Those are Philistine cities. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. Again, I realize that's brutal, but this is war, and it was kill or be killed. And on another occasion, you know, we'll have to think about the ethics of the various Old Testament wars, but... What we're supposed to learn from this is that when God gives the victory, he doesn't do half a job. David didn't wound Goliath so the army could then come up behind him and finish the job. David finished the job. And so did Jesus. And secondly, uh, the victory wasn't David's alone. It was the people's victory. So David said in verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, 
for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you, Philistines, into our hands. He doesn't say my hands. He's the, one, he's the only one fighting. But he says, God will, give us, God will give you into our hands. David's victory was Israel's victory. All Israel had to do was be on the right side. They didn't have to do anything else. So how does that point to Jesus? Well, Jesus' death uh, and victory over death was conclusive. He said on the cross, it is finished, didn't he? And we know from experience, there is nothing we can do to permanently defeat death. But our Savior has done it all. And so to be on the winning side, to, uh, to benefit from that victory, all we need to do is cast our lot in with the one who's won the victory, with the Savior. Jesus' invitation to us is the same as it's always been, to all his disciples, follow me. Let him win the battle, and we just follow on. And finally, death, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, so uh, Christ's uh, Christ victory over death was conclusive. Christ's victory over death was for us. And that means that, ironically, in death, we will all defeat death as well if we have followed Christ. It is in dying that we're born to eternal life, that famous song says. So let me finish with these words from 1 Corinthians 15, which we're going to be singing in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh grave, is your sting? These would be really flippant words to say unless they were true. Think of Rusty, our friend, who died recently. Wouldn't it be flippant to say these kinds of things about her unless it was true? And we can say it's true. She's won the victory. Death has no sting for her. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the story of David and Goliath is about. It's about Jesus' victory over death, which he wants to share with each one of us. Now, I know that for many of us, death is hopefully a very long way away. And there are lots of things we can learn from this story about our day-to-day -day lives. But I wanted to get the big picture, and there it is. Christ has won the victory for us. So let's live this week in light of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for that victory you have won over death. Thank you for the way it does change our daily lives. How could we not live differently when we know that death is not the end? So please, Lord Jesus, help us to live in victory today, the rest of this week, and for the rest of our lives. Amen.